Welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. For more information about our faith community, feel free to visit gatewaychurch.org.nz. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy this message. Welcome along to Gateway. Uh, if you happen to be visiting with us, we are glad you're here. Um, last Sunday morning, I started a series. We began the year with our summer series, both morning and night, and our speakers during that time were just um, of such incredible quality. I, I think I mentioned last week I felt quite intimidated getting up. Um, they, they were just absolutely top-notch. Um, but last week we started the series, One God, One Story, One People. And I really just set the scene last week by talking to you about the power and the purpose of stories. And I talked about how stories are intricately interwoven with the way we see the world, with our, with our worldview. Every single culture has its worldview and has the stories that articulate and affirm that, that worldview. And with those stories and through that worldview, they are seeking to explain and answer the questions that every single human being must ask. Who am I and why am I here? What should human life look like? What's gone wrong with the world as I experience it? How can it be fixed? Where are we heading? What time is it? They are the basic questions that every single human being asks, and worldview and the stories associated with worldview unpack and seek to provide an answer for those questions. I talked about how stories create identity, both of persons and of people, and how we act out of the stories that, that we believe. There is nobody who doesn't live inside and act out of a story. Human beings have a storied identity, and, and we are all storied. We, we live in an ecology of stories, in a, in a narrative landscape, if you like. Now, whether you reflect on that or whether you think about that really doesn't change the fact that that is the way it is. Even postmodern people who claim not to believe in any big stories and they seek to act authentically, you know, that, that expressive individualism that I talked about last week, that in fact is a story and it's not actually a particularly modern story. It really is a representation of ancient hedonism, you know, you act in the moment for yourself for the maximum pleasure. As much as we like to think how modern a story that is, it isn't. Stories are as inescapable for human beings as philosophy is. You know, people, oh, I don't, I don't do philosophy. Listen, that is a philosophy, and, and we cannot escape stories and philosophy. Setting the scene like that, I then moved on and talked about how the how the Bible is a big story, that the Bible contains, as it were, a, a meta-narrative, a large story within which there are many smaller stories and subplots, but it is essentially a story of God's romance with the world. It's about God's unquenchable and gratuitous love for mankind, and it illustrates the great lengths that he's gone to to redeem and to restore to himself mankind after they turned away from him so that ultimately they can come back and fulfill his original intention of being his images in a world as his appointed stewards in that world to bring his glory to it as the waters cover the sea. It's a unified, progressively unfolding drama of God's action in history for the salvation of the whole world. And you can't treat Scripture as much as so often we do as just a jumble of stories of history, of poetry, of lessons in morality, some theology, some comforting promises, some guiding principles, some commands. It is a fundamental, coherent story within which all of those other things must fit. When we come to the Bible just taking pieces as we like or as they speak to us, we end up treating the Bible like a holy horoscope and failing to see it as a coherent, 
fundamental story. Each part of the Bible, each event, each book, each character, each command and prophecy, as valid as they might be and speak to you as they do, they have to be seen and understood in the context of that overall storyline. There's, there's one story. As I say, even in preaching, so often we tend to approach the Bible as a mosaic of, of little bits, theological bits, moral bits, historical bits, devotional bits, and we miss the point that it's a story. When we miss the point that this is an overall story, when we don't understand it as a story, then we can't be shaped by it or act out of it as a story. And I'd like to suggest to you that biblical spirituality is about living in that story, understanding that story. We get into the story and the story gets into us and it answers those questions that, that haunt every single person. Who am I? What am I doing here? What's gone wrong with the world? How can it be fixed? Where are we heading? What time is it? Australian sociologist uh, John Carroll, who by the way is not a doesn't profess to be a Christian, but he made the comment that he believes that the church in the West is in deep trouble because it's forgotten its story. And I, I can't help but agree with him. As you, as you hear much of the preaching and much of, you know, as you see much of the way the people of God approach the Bible, you realize it's so incredibly piecemeal and, and we have, we've lost our story. If we don't understand and live out of our story, then we will simply be absorbed into whatever other stories are shaping our culture at the time. And I spoke last week, as I mentioned, about the expressive individualism that is presently shaping Western civilization. We are numero uno, and everything about us, including all our relationships, they have to fulfill me. And if they don't fulfill me, then something's wrong with them and I go looking for that which will fulfill me. That's the, that's the shaping story of Western civilization. And it seems to me, and I'm not the only voice here, I'm not a lone voice crying in the wilderness, that the church has become much more Western in its story than it is biblical. And even when we read the Bible, so often we read it with Western eyes through our Western individual story, and the Bible is about me. It's how God saves me. It's about how God has gifts and plans for me. And instead of reading the biblical story uh, and being shaped by it, we take our Western individualism to the Bible story and we shape that story. The Bible is supposed to shape and where necessary challenge and sometimes even subvert the present cultural stories. Bishop N.T. Wright, one of the probably prominent and most outstanding theologians in our in our time anyway, has said this. A crucial part of our theological and missional task is to tell the Bible story as clearly as possible and to allow it to subvert other ways of telling the story of this world. To tell the Bible story as clearly as possible and let it work to subvert the other stories. Bishop Wright goes on to say that the early church understood God's story kind of like a five-act play. So they would say act one was God's creation. Act two was the fall. Act three was God beginning to step in to restore what had been lost through the election of Israel. Act four, the drama and the climax is reached with the events concerning Jesus of Nazareth. And then Acts five is the early church on where the actors are really charged with the responsibility of improvising the final scenes of the play on the basis of what has gone before. And at the very end of the play, we have the final goal, that which it has all been progressing toward as it's outlined according to Romans chapter 8, that creation will be renewed and flooded with the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. So if you can see the Bible story, Wright says, as a five-act play. Now, one very good book that uh, actually Donald gave me, and a number of you have read it apparently, called The Drama of Scripture. Craig Bartholomew and Michael Gohen, uh, they suggest rather than five acts, they, they suggest six. And, 
and you can do one or the other, it doesn't really worry me, but again, act one is creation, act two is the fall, act three is redemption initiated in the election of Israel, act four is the coming king and redemption accomplished in and through Jesus, act five is the mission of the one people, and act six is the return of the king and redemption accomplished. It's a good way to see that coherent meta-narrative, that big story. I, I mentioned last week, and I want to pick this thought up and run with it a bit this morning, that many Christians approach the Scriptures as if the New Testament is almost completely unrelated to the Old Testament, and it's reflected in the way they read the Bible. 90% plus is, is reading in the New Testament, maybe a little bit from the Psalms, occasionally from the Proverbs, but pretty much else, you know, is it's neglected. That comes out of the fact that for many of us, we have not seen the story as one story. And for many, there is little or no continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And somehow they believe that in the coming of Jesus, there is a break with that old story, that he swept the Jewish map off the table and started a new religion. They would read Paul in the same way, reinforcing that idea that there's a break with anything that's Jewish. And, and you know, maybe you, as you read Galatians and a few other passages, Paul has got some things to say about the law and the Jewish way of life. It seems like he's completely breaking away. But, but I mentioned last week that neither Jesus nor Paul would ever have seen their lives and missions as breaking with the story. They, they came in terms of the story's continuity and its, its fulfillment. Neither Paul nor Jesus talked about Old Testament or New Testament. They simply spoke about the scriptures. Now, you, you might say, well, Don, what about when Jesus was breaking bread with the disciples in the upper room and he said, this is the new covenant? Wasn't, isn't that saying there's a new story now as opposed to and different from the old story? Well, well actually, no. He does talk about a new covenant, but not as a break from the old story. He's actually referring to prophets within the old story, speaking of Jeremiah, of Ezekiel, who promised and prophesied a work of God's spirit in the hearts of God's people at some future time in the one story. He's referring to those prophetic words, but he's not breaking the story. Neither Jesus nor Paul saw themselves as starting a new religion, something radically different in terms of the story from what they were already profoundly embedded in. You might say, well, Don, where did we get this idea that the Old Testament and the New Testament are quite different? Um, a couple of weeks ago, we had Professor uh, Rick Watts from Regent uh, College here um, spoke brilliantly to this very point, and I thoroughly recommend the podcast. Uh, it will fit very much within this series. And, and Rick said that that idea of the break between Old and New Testament probably started with a man called Marcion. Marcion was a second century heretic who, as it turns out, didn't very much like the God that he read about in the Old Testament. He thought he was capricious and cruel and, and, and sort of grumpy, and he decided that that was a very, very different God from, from Jesus. So he separated the old scripture, the old stories from, from the new, and came up with the idea that Jesus and this other God were very different persons involved in very distinct and very different stories. Now, although Marcion was ultimately rejected and recognized by the early church as a heretic, those ideas that he sowed have persisted much longer than he did, and a lot of people even today, are much more influenced by Marcion's thinking than they would care to admit, or perhaps that they even know. Right, having said that, I want to jump into our story, and I'm not going to start at Act 1. I'm going to jump into the story where, for most of it, it seems to break apart. At the beginning of Act 4, at the beginning of the New Testament, where Jesus arrives as part of the story, not as a break from it. And I want to pick up some unusual verses, some verses that you might think, oh my goodness, what's he reading that for? But I want to pick up Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. 
and read the first 17 verses. Now, most of us never read this. Just hang with me because it's just a long list of names. Okay, and it goes like this. The family tree of Jesus Christ, David's son, Abraham's son. Take notice of those two things. David's son, Abraham's son. That's important. Abraham had Isaac. Isaac had Jacob. Jacob had Judah and his brothers. Judah had Perez and Zerah. The mother was Tamar. Actually, again, just parenthetically, if you want to just take the woman in this genealogy, fascinating study, okay? A, women are normally never included in genealogies. These women are not only women, but are questionable in terms of both their origins and their behavior. Matthew is saying something right at the beginning of his gospel. Close brackets, okay? Perez had Hezron, Hezron had Aram, Aram had Abinadad, Abinadad had Nashon, Nashon had Salmon, Salmon had Boaz, his mother was Rahab. Boaz had Obed, Ruth was the mother. Obed had Jesse, Jesse had David and David became king. David had Solomon, Uriah's wife was the mother. Solomon had Rehoboam, Rehoboam had Abijah, Abijah had Asa, Asa had Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat had Joram, Joram had Uzziah. Uzziah had Jotham, Jotham had Ahaz, Ahaz had Hezekiah, Hezekiah had Manasseh, Manasseh had Ammon, Ammon had Josiah, Josiah had Jehoiakim and his brothers, and then the people were taken into the Babylonian exile. When the Babylonian exile ended, Jehoiakim had Shealtiel, Shealtiel had Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel had Abiod, Abiod had Eliakim, Eliakim had Azor, Azor had Zadok, Zadok had Achim, Achim had Elihud, Elihud had Eleazar, Eleazar had Mathan, Mathan had Jacob, Jacob had Joseph, Mary's husband, and the Mary who gave birth to Jesus, the Jesus who was called the Christ. There were 14 generations from Abraham to David, another 14 from David to the Babylonian exile, yet another 14 from the Babylonian exile to Christ. You think, Don, who actually reads that stuff apart from you? (laughs) Mostly when we come to lists of names like that, we wonder if anyone other than their mothers really care. And, And we're quite happy just to skip it. Again, that's because of our story. That's because we aren't interested in the past. We are lost in our expressively individual present. You go to many, many cultures of the world, this stuff is fascinating. They want to delve into this stuff because for them, it validates the story in ways that Westerners just simply do not get. Some of you may have read a book, uh, a book called, uh, by Ayan Hersey Ali. She wrote a book called Infidels. She, uh, she's not a Christian. She's a remarkable character, actually. Some of you may remember she made a short film with Theo Van Gogh on woman in Islam, and Theo Van Gogh was murdered uh, as a result of, of that short film. She went into hiding, ultimately became a Dutch politician, uh, life-threatened, I think, somewhere in the States now, probably or possibly still in hiding. Fascinating book, and I want to read you how this book starts. These are the opening paragraphs of Ariane Hershey Ali's book, Infidel, and it goes like this. Who are you? I am Ayan, the daughter of Hershey, the son of Megan. I am sitting with my grandmother on a grass mat under a talal tree. Behind us is our house, and the branches of the talal tree are the only thing that shields us from the sun, blazing down on the white sand. Go on, my grandmother says, glaring at me. And Magan was the son of Isi. And then Isi was the son of Guliad, and the son of Ali was the son of Wais, was the son of Muhammad Ali Umar. I hesitate for a moment. Osman, Muhammad, I catch my breath, proud of myself. Ba, asked my grandmother, which consort? Ba, Yaqab, Garab, Sari. I named the most powerful of Osman, Muhammad's wives. Daughter of Yaqab, she of the highest shoulder. My grandmother nods grudgingly. I have done well for a five-year-old. I have managed to count my forefathers back 300 years. The part that was crucially important, Osman Muhammad is the name of my father's subclan and thus my own. It is where I belong, it is who I am. 
Later, as I grow up, my grandmother will coax and even beat me to learn my father's ancestry 800 years back to the beginning of the great clan of the Darod. I am a Darod, a Hati, a Machian, and Osman Muhammad. I am of the consort called the higher shoulder. I am Magan. Get it right, my grandmother warns me, shaking a switch at me. The names will make you strong. They are your bloodline. If you honor them, they will keep you alive. If you dishonor them, they, you will be forsaken. You will be nothing. You will lead a wretched life and die alone. Do it again. Then she says, Somali children must memorize their lineage. This is more important than almost anything else. Whenever a Somali meets a stranger, they ask each other, who are you? And they trace back their separate ancestries until they find a common forefather. Now, this is strange to us Westerners. We just don't think like this. But you have to understand, the Bible is not a Western book. It's an Eastern book, a Middle Eastern book. And this stuff is important and it says things to the people in that culture that we have to explore and not simply ignore if we're going to understand the story. This genealogy reminds Ariane Hershey Ali her part in the story and the grandmother is saying you play your part in the light of the larger story in which you're embedded. Honor the story and the story will honor you. You know, actually, I could have illustrated this point by coming a lot closer to home than simply Somalia. Because in the Māori language and in the Māori culture, there is this idea embedded. Now, my tereo is not so good, so I'll put up the tereo. If you can read it, you read it. But it translates like this. Have we got that slide? If you know who you are and where you come from, then you will know where you're going. Can I suggest to you that most Westerners have got no idea and little interest where they've come from? And, and really, the struggle is to find who I am in the present without reference to the past story. And that's why most of us haven't got a clue in our culture where we're going. That's why we are lost in grabbing for as much pleasure as we can in the moment, because that's all we understand. We fail to see we are part of a story. These long lists of genealogy, including the one that we've just read from Matthew, help people in the story know who they are, where they come from, and help them to understand where they're heading. It helps people realize that they're part of a story in a way, as I say, that we individualistic Westerners just don't get. So the first 17 verses of Matthew's gospel, Matthew is telling us something, and he's saying this, you won't understand the story that I'm about to tell you unless you see it in the light of a much larger story that goes back many centuries, and it leads up to this person and this point. This is not a new story. You have to understand what I'm about to tell you in the light of what has gone before. You will only fully understand the Jesus story if you see it as part of a larger, continuous story of which he is the climax thus far and the pivot point on which the rest will hinge. So those 17 verses in Matthew, the, the, the first 17 verses, are central to the, the historical interface which binds together the story thus far with the story that's about to go forward, with the story that Matthew's about to tell us. These verses and this story of Jesus presuppose an earlier story. And what Matthew's doing by putting those names there is deliberately hooking into the story that he's about to tell into the larger and previous plot. And he says it's a story that begins with Abraham, with Isaac, and Jacob. The start of that list, Jesus is called Abraham's son, the seed of Abraham. Now, what Matthew does and, and what we Western readers find it so difficult to see, is that he tells a story in that list. There's a story in that list. It's not just a list of names that only their mums care about. There's a story in the list, and he tells it in the form of what we call a schematized genealogy. The word schematic simply means a simplistic representation. This isn't actually an accurate genealogy of Jesus. It's not intended to be. 
When people were in the, in, the, in the ancient East using genealogies, they weren't always biologically correct or historically accurate. Now, we would want to put their hands up and say, hey, you've missed three generations. They said, that's not the point. When they would tell generations, uh, generational stories like that, it wasn't necessarily to be historically accurate, though they could be that if they needed to be. The goal wasn't accuracy, it was to tell a story. And you see it here, as Matthew says at the end, so there are three periods of 14. There are three periods of 14 generations. It goes, there were 14 generations from Abraham to David, from David to Babylonian exile, and another 14 from the Babylonian exile to Jesus. Three 14s add up to 42, which is six groups of seven. Numbers were important to these people. And with Jesus, we have the seventh seven. This is something new that's about to start. Matthew intends us to see and to understand that Jesus is the climax of the story thus far. This genealogy says to Matthew's careful readers that the story of Abraham comes to its fulfillment. It's seventh seven with this new David the one who will rescue his people from their ongoing exile and save the people from their sins. So Matthew is hooking back into this and saying, this is the climax of all the story thus far. It isn't a new and unrelated story. Matthew's plot and his structure presupposes the entire Jewish story up to this point. The story that goes forward is now the continuation as well as the climax of the previous story. Matthew, as I said, starts with Abraham. Now, I'm not trying to be cute or complex by saying when you go to Abraham, you have to understand there's a backstory to Abraham. See, the calling of Abraham happens in Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 1 up to chapter 12 Chapter 1 to 11 is the backstory to the calling of Abraham. These chapters set the scene and pose the question to which the rest of the Bible from Genesis 12 right through to Revelation 22 are the answer. As I said, the act one, it begins, the story begins with the true God creating the cosmos, the heavens and the earth. In that creation, he creates someone after his own image, a people after his own image that he will dwell with and have relationship to and that they will be his divinely appointed stewards to image him to the rest of creation as they tend it in relationship with him. That's Genesis 1 to 2. Act 2 begins in Genesis 3, where those divinely appointed stewards rebel against his love and his authority, and their rebellion dramatically affects the whole realm over which they have been appointed stewards, firstly at an individual level, and then increasingly the whole of human society is enmeshed in a growing web of corruption and violence. So much so that even a worldwide flood in Genesis chapter 6 cannot eradicate. And the climax of that prehistory is reached with the story in Genesis 11 of the Tower of Babel. A people broken, scattered, divided, violent at all levels. And the question comes, is there any hope for the human race in this condition? Can the nations of the earth ever, ever be restored to the blessing and favor of God. Curtain closes, act one and two are gone. Act three is God's answer to the, those questions. And the answer is an unequivocal, yes, there is hope. Yes, they can be restored. And the answer begins in the calling of a 75-year-old man with an equally old and childless wife, Abraham and Sarah. Theologically, we call that election, the election of Abraham and his family, the nation of Israel. Now, two things that election doesn't mean, okay? Number one, it has nothing to do with politics and voting, all right? I'm not trying to be funny, I'm just trying to make sure you understand. There's, there's actually nothing democratic about this at all. 
God's kingdom is not a democracy, it's a theocracy, and he's theo, okay? <laughs> Secondly, it doesn't have anything to do with the 16th to 18th century concept associated with a man called John Calvin, where the word is also um, usually combined with another concept called predestination. And people argue about whether or not God sovereignly and eternally chose some people to salvation and some people to damnation before they were even born. Not interested, okay? Not talking about that. Election as we're using it here, simply highlights the choice of God to choose Abraham and then Abraham's family, the people historically known as Israel, for a particular purpose, okay? Elected for a purpose. Again, if I can quote N.T. Wright, the reason the creator God called Abraham in the first place was to undo the sin of Adam and its effects. The choice of Abraham is a rescuing choice. The apparent divine answer to the failure of humankind from Adam and Eve through to the Tower of Babel. So God chooses this elderly couple. He promises them a son and then he says through that son and the nation that will flow from that son I will bless the world. You will be blessed, and then I will go on and bless the world. And I will set up a nation that will stand in graphic contrast to the other nations that are still a reflection of the brokenness of Babel. So important is this choice that it becomes part of, if I can put it this way, the identity of God thereafter. He is known and indeed chooses to be known as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So the choosing of Israel is for the sake of the nations. I've used this illustration before, but it serves, and so forgive me if you've heard it too many times before, but when I was a school teacher, at the end of term, probably as much a relief on my part as seeking to treat my children, I would, I would elect a child. I would, come and see me. And they would come up, and I'd say, hey, I want you to do something for me. And I would explain what I wanted done and how I wanted it done, and I would give them the money, and they would go down to the local dairy and bring back a couple of boxes of ice blocks. That elect child would then distribute the ice blocks to everybody in the classroom. And I don't recall anybody saying, I don't like the way you picked on that person. That's real favoritism, because they all understood that election was actually them in mind. It had them in mind. Israel existed for the sake of the nations. Israel's calling and story, as we see it in the, what we call the Old Testament, was not intended to be a ticket to cozy state of privilege or favoritism. It laid on them a missionary task and a moral responsibility. And the rest of the world was never absent in the mind and purposes of God in his dealings with Israel. We might say, at least at this point in the story, I hope you won't think I'm being blasphemous, but we could say actually theologically correctly that God so loved the world that he chose Israel. Okay? With the thought that they were elect unto servanthood and they wanted to, God wanted the whole of mankind blessed. So Israel's history is a particular means for a universal goal. It's a, uni it's, a, it's a unique history, but intended to have a universal effect. So this idea of election unto servanthood appears again and again and again in Israel's history. At Mount Sinai, for example, where God is giving them the law and he's forming their identity and their, their nationhood, he impresses on the people their unique identity and the purpose of it, that in the midst of and for the sake of the nations, he was electing them. He leaves them without any doubt that he isn't some local minor deity, some nationalistic God that they can tame and domesticate for their own benefit. He's the God of all of the earth and the God of all the nations of the earth. So in Exodus 19.5, it says, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my commands, you shall be my treasured possession among the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and God has all the earth in mind. 
And you see this idea reiterated again and again, whether you go to the wisdom literature or the prophets, it's there. For example, Psalm 67, verse one through five, may God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine on us. You can hear the echoes of Abraham's calling there. I will bless you and I will make you a blessing. They are, that, that hooks into that part of the story and it goes on, that your way may be known on the earth, your saving power among all the nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God, let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon the earth. Let all the peoples praise you, O God, let all the peoples praise you. Bless us, why? So that all the people will learn your ways and also so we'll learn to praise you. Psalm 72, which is, by the way, a psalm initially for Solomon, but with messianic implications, a psalm for the king. It says, may his name endure forever. His fame continue as long as the sun. May the people be blessed in him. All nations call him blessed. Blessings. Hooking into the calling of Abraham. This is why you were created. This is why you were called. This is why you're a unique person. And Jeremiah, the prophets say the same. Jeremiah says, Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of the harvest. When you get the first fruits of the harvest, you don't tuck that in your bag, go away and forget the harvest. That's just a token and a promise of all that is to come. And God is saying through Jeremiah, Israel was chosen elect. They were the first fruits, but I have the harvest in mind. You, you can't read Isaiah without the realization again and again and again, he says, this is about the nations. Isaiah 49, 6, I will make you, Israel, a light to the Gentiles, that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. In a way, you're a means to the end, Israel. Isaiah 45, 22, God turns to the nations and he says, turn to me and be saved all you ends of the earth for I am God and there's no other. Listen, God cares for the whole earth and for all of the peoples of it. An election was unto servanthood, blessed so ultimately they would be a blessing. That's act three. And as we follow through this story from act three, Genesis 12 to Malachi chapter 4, we are disappointed again and again by Israel's inability and or their unwillingness to be the people that God called them to be. He called them to be different. They demanded to be the same. Give us a king like the other nations. He called them to be obedient and trusting. Repeatedly, they are disobedient and unbelieving. He called them to be a nation that made other people turn toward God. Paul says in Romans chapter 3, 34, that the nations blaspheme God because of you. The very opposite effect. He called them to live for the sake of the nations. They lived for themselves and turned their back on the nations. In Hosea, it says, Israel is an empty vine. He brings forth fruit unto himself. By the time Jesus comes along in Acts chapter four, in, in Act four of our, of our story, the, the, the people aren't allowed into the temple. The, the temple that was supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations has been turned, Jesus says, into a den of iniquity and thieves. They, they completely missed that calling. Israel, who are supposed to be God's answer to Adam's sin, show themselves to be hopelessly caught in the same web as everybody else. And Paul says that, of course, in Romans. Both Jews and Greeks are under sin. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So in our story, we have a massive problem. Israel has clearly failed in her calling and in her mission. What about God's promises to Abraham and to David? you will have a son, you will have a king. If Israel's God is to prove faithful, then the story simply cannot collapse and implode because of Israel's unfaithfulness. Israel's faith, unfaithfulness means we have another, as it were, twist in the plot with the coming of Jesus. Understand, this isn't a break in the story. He is Abraham's son, the seed of Abraham. He is the seed of David. He's Israel's Messiah. In Jesus, God has finally found his faithful Israelite, 
Up until this point, he has not had them. But in Jesus, he has his faithful Israelite. When, when God promised Abraham a seed, we think of the nation. But Paul speaks to that in Galatians, and he says this. Now the promises were made to Abraham and his descendant. You will observe that scripture in the careful language of a legal document does not say to descendants, referring to everybody in general, but to your descendant, the noun note is singular, referring to Christ, Abraham's seed, singular. Abraham's seed, plural, Israel has failed miserably, but Abraham's seed, There is the faithful Israelite. And you know the paradox is that we move away from the mass of Israel down to the narrowing down to the unique particularity of one Israelite, the seed of Abraham, the single seed, Jesus. And in Jesus, the way is opened as God promised the door to redemptive grace to the nations. What God has been doing through no other nation, he now completes through no other person, the person of Jesus, Messiah. All along, God promised that he would rescue the world through Abraham's seed. The failure of Israel did not alter God's plan. Abraham's seed comes in the person of Jesus who fulfills and accomplishes God's purpose for Israel. Jesus, as Messiah, has drawn together the identity and vocation of Israel upon himself. It's not a different story. For so many of us Western Christians, we have been influenced by an incredibly pervasive doctrinal theological perspective uh, or um, thought pattern that, that, that we call dispensationalism. And we've assumed, many of us, caught it as much as been taught it, or some of us have been taught it as well, that because of Israel's failure, God changed his mind, and therefore, as a result, the story. It was as if first he intended to bring a Messiah to Israel, but Israel rejected Messiah. So what happens then is God goes down a different route. The story takes leave of its Jewish roots as if God has now ignored the historical backstory of Israel and he starts a completely new story in Jesus. And according to dispensationalism, he has two people, an earthly people, the nation of Israel, and now when they turned their back on the Messiah, he turned to the Gentiles, and he now has a spiritual people called the church. And he will deal with the spiritual people, the church, as long as he needs to, and when the fullness of the Gentiles come in, I'm quoting scripture here, then then he will lift the church out of the scene of earth by the rapture, and he will go back to the story that he has presently paused. And you've probably read literature which talks about the prophetic clock stop ticking with the rejection of the Messiah. Once the rapture takes place, the prophetic clock will start ticking again. The heavenly people are gone, and God will now go back to his backstory of the earthly people, and he'll deal with them. And we'll, we'll you know, for those of you who have read the, the, um, that series of books, what are they called? Left Behind series, you know, the, the whole, about seven or eight, that, that outlines the dispensational idea of what will then happen. The church is gone, the earth will be plunged into seven years of tribulation and Antichrist will arise. God will come and save his earthly people. He'll set up an earthly kingdom in Jerusalem and all the nations will. That's dispensationalism. And it arises out of the idea that the story has changed. You say, Don, don't you believe that in short? No, no I don't. And yet so much, you go into nearly any bookshop in the Western world, at least anyway, and look at the prophecy section, it's all about temples being rebuilt and, and the nation of Israel being regathered and, and you know, God is, these, these are the end time signs that, hmm, where does that fit with one story, one people, one God? I think they're very different, and I know that I'll upset some apple carts. In fact, I'm planning at the end of this series to have a, uh, an apple cider sale, because <laughs> we'll get all the apples together, we'll crunch them up, and we'll sell them, and, and try and make some money out of this mess. 
Because I was raised on this too. And about probably 10, 15 years ago, as I started to really delve into the scriptures and think, gee, this doesn't make as much sense as I thought it did. And, and some of these things that are quoted so glibly, actually, that isn't what they say. And, and as you get into the New Testament, which, which we will do in this series, you suddenly start to see it's one story, one God, one story, and, and you can stone me if, if you want to, but one people. It's one people. It's not two people. God does not have a heavenly people and an earthly people. He has one people. And we'll see that from the scriptures as we go ahead. Now, some of you are sitting back there and saying, oh, daddy, 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 who cares? I mean, seriously, what does that matter to me? Well, listen, friends, it should matter to you. Because I'm trying to outline to you a story that if you can grasp... And if you believe, we'll give you a story worth giving your life to. Worth giving your life to. This can be a story that can give you hope and that can hold you steady in the midst of your middled and muddled present. Because it tells you where you've come from, who you are, and where you're going to. And I want to tell you, there's not a Western story that can tell you those questions. Because when they say, where did you come from? Who knows? Primordial ooze? Aliens. I just, I'm staggered. I'm staggered. You know, when people say, I don't believe in Yahweh, I don't believe in the Bible, as G.K. Chesterton says, it doesn't, it doesn't mean that they don't believe in anything. It means they believe in everything. I, I was reading, you know, as, as, if, as if he is a, a, an authority to be quoted, I saw an interview with Shane Warne the other night. And they asked him, where, where did you come from? Aliens. Okay, Warney, stick to your leg breaks. You were good at that. Your theology sucks. Somebody else, just yesterday, where did you, where do you, aliens, got to be aliens. I don't believe in the primordial ooze. It's got to be aliens. When people don't believe in the Bible, they don't believe in nothing. They believe in anything. And, and it's not worth giving your life for. Seriously. If you can understand your call to be part of the story, which is what Jesus means when he says, come and follow me, come and follow me, then you can have a story powerful enough to enable you to go through the what's of your life, what's happening. Because this story will give you a why. Our culture gives you stories that are so small you know, they aren't any bigger than you and your family. Listen, that, that's not a big enough story to live by. It's not a big enough story to make you sacrifice, to live sacrificially. If the story's all about me, why, why would I sacrifice, for goodness sake? Let other people sacrifice. Because we've been told in our society not to listen to or believe in big stories, we're condemned to live in stories far too small. They are the stories of our own personal fulfillment and happiness. And you see people all around you screwing their lives up in the decisions they make seeking for personal happiness and fulfillment. Jesus said, if you're prepared to lose the small stories of your personal fulfillment to live in my large stories, those things will take care of themselves. That's not exactly the biblical way he put it. But he said, you know, if you're willing to die and pick up the cross and follow me, then, then you'll find the life that you're longing for. If we aren't aware of our calling to a much larger story and how that story ends, then we're, living, we're, then we're left, like our Western society, trying to squeeze every pleasure out of every inch of the moments that we have because there isn't anything to come. We don't know where we've come from. We haven't got a clue where we're going. We might as well get everything we can in the moment. There's no certain tomorrow. If, you know, uh, today is all we've got. Instant gratification in that context makes sense. And we remain slaves to the inherited stories and to the present cultural stories. Sometimes you're never quite sure how much to say because you know that if I go there, I'm going to get into trouble and, and, and I'm tempted to go into trouble, but I'll probably... 
We'll see how many apples we've got at the end of the series, okay? Postmodern society tells us there are no true stories. Don't believe people who tell big stories, they're just trying to control your life. You live for your own story, which of course is, as I've said, a big story. But I, I want to tell you, there has to be some true stories. Not all stories are true. Postmodern pluralistic society will tell you all stories are valid. All stories are true. That's nonsense. I mean, you don't have to be a philosopher. You don't have to be good at logic to work it. That's nonsense. Western society says there's no God. Islam says there's one God, but he has no son, and, and he's numerically one. Christianity says there's one God, but within that one essence of God, there are three people. Hinduism says there are 800 million gods. Choose whichever you want. Buddhism actually says, you know, classical Buddhism, there is no God. I mean, all of those can't be true at the same time. Don't give me that postmodern pluralistic stuff and say they're all valid. That's nonsense. You don't believe that when your kids come in and there's a broken window and there's four different stories and you say, well, all are valid. There must be four people to blame. You go in and say, come on now, tell me who broke the window. There's one story here. It's not pluralistic tolerance to believe the four stories. Some of them are illusory. Some of them are lies. And it's the same with these stories. Listen, I don't very often agree with Christopher Hitchens, the atheist, but I do when he says this. Since all of these revelations or stories, many of them hopelessly inconsistent, cannot by definition be simultaneously true. It must follow that some of them are false and some of them are illusory. Not all the stories are true. You've got to find out the true story. Which one fits with the fact, facts? Which one is true to your experience? Which one best explains the world as we, as we see it and experience? There are some stories that are just nuts, quite frankly, and I'm not trying to be, you know, as soon as you talk like this, people accuse you of arrogance. I know it's possible to be arrogant, but truth isn't arrogant. Two plus two equals four is not an arrogant statement, it's just the reality. And I don't mean to be, I don't mean to be arrogant in the conveying of this, but you, Owe it to yourself to do some work on what is true. What are the true stories that I will live for? Or will I simply be lost in the maze of my individualistic story, which is Western society? And as I said last week, with the growing rates of depression and suicide, it's not, you don't have to be a prophet to look at Western society and say, the story doesn't work. In the end, you end up with what you deserve. I'm thinking, should I say something? Maybe not. Go on. Oh, you wicked person. <laughs> Get behind me, Satan. And he said from behind, go on, go on, tell him. No, I won't. I think I'm done, okay? Frederick Nietzsche said, if you don't have a why to live for, you'll never survive the hows and the whats of your life. But if you have a why to live for, you can endure any what. You are invited by the grace of God into a big story that's, that's worth giving your life to and worth sacrificing for. It's one God, it's one story, and you are being invited into its one people. Thanks for listening. We hope it was an encouragement to you. Again, Check out gatewaychurch.org.nz to find out what's going on within our church.